by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now, there is, uh, I would suggest this morning, a world of difference between the maturity that we associate with uh, cheddar cheese or malt whiskey and the maturity that is associated with a Christian. Cheese is described as mature because it's rested for months on a shelf. And a mature whiskey blend has spent years, I'm told, in a barrel. Well, this is passive maturity, manufactured by nothing other than the advance of time. But Christian maturity is not something that is automatically attained with age. It is an active maturity. It requires right responses, right decisions, right actions, and right speech. And in Chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, you will remember James speaks of the maturity that comes from properly responding to the source circumstances that test our faith. And then in chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, James describes the maturity that comes through obedience to the Word of God. And here in chapter 3, verse 2, he points out the contribution our speech makes to spiritual maturity. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect or a mature man able to keep his whole body in check. In other words, our spiritual health is measured by the way in which we use our tongues. Speech reveals heart attitudes. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6 and 45, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Our speech reveals just how much control God has over our lives. And so unsurprisingly, James spends a significant amount of time teaching on the tongue. Uh, three points are apparent, and a fourth is often uh, avoided. 
First, the disproportionate power of the tongue. Secondly, the devastating damage produced by the tongue. Thirdly, the dreadful inconsistency of the tongue. And the fourth point, the demanding necessity of application. That's the one often avoided. Well, the disproportionate power of the tongue. Uh, We don't know if James ever visited the great Hippodrome at Caesarea where chariot races were held. If so, he'd have seen chariots pulled by teams of four powerful horses, each controlled by a tiny little bit of metal resulting either in a safe circuit or a chariot pile-up. What does the charioteer do with the bit in the horse's mouth? How does he guide it? Secondly, James clearly knew how sailing boats worked. A tiny rudder controlled the ship's direction. Now, large grain ships plied the Mediterranean in the first century. Other ships were capable of carrying up to 1,000 people. And the helmsman who operated the rudder could lead that ship either safely into the harbor or see it dashed on the rocks. Both illustrations are used by James to drive home the disproportionate power of the tongue. This tiny little muscle has the power for good or for ill. Think, for example, this morning of the great benefit brought to society by various wordsmiths, poets, playwrights, uh, politicians. We've all favorite poets who've lifted our spirits. Our culture would surely be all the poorer without William Shakespeare. Society owes a great deal to politicians like Shaftesbury and Wilberforce. Or think of the hours Churchill spent crafting speeches to galvanize the nation in time of trouble. Words like never in the field of human conflict. Sorry, I don't have the accent. Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed to so many uh, by, uh, been owed by so many to so few. I can't even get the quotation uh, right. Now, not only can this little tongue be used for building up Uh, society, but also it can contribute to its disintegration. The tremendous power of words for ill can be seen, for example, in Hitler's oratory during his Nuremberg addresses, which so mesmerized many in Germany that they engaged in horrific acts of abuse. Or think of the the powerful rhetoric of the Iranian mullahs who whipped up their hearers, unarmed hearers, into a frenzy during Friday prayers so that these 
impressionable villagers would go out to confront the the Shah's centurion tanks in the city. Words can be extremely influential. Political parties recognize the value of campaign slogans. They know only too well that words can shape people's thinking and motivate their behavior. Such is the disproportionate power of the tongue. Now, it is no accident that James begins his teaching block on the tongue as he does in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Both the content and the manner of the preacher's delivery should cause him earnestly to pray with the psalmist in Psalm 143, set a guard on my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. The danger is that the teacher or preacher whose stock in trade tends to be words, can employ them carelessly. Or worse, like many of the Pharisees, exclude himself from the application of his teaching. And so, encouragement and discouragement, truth, and error, faith and fear, strengthening and weakening can all be generated through the use of this tiny little muscle. I have a preacher uh, acquaintance uh, who describes himself as having a demolition ministry. And I've heard him preach on a number of occasions. And that's what he's done. He has demolished folks before him. There is no encouragement. There is no uplift. Indeed, speaking to him of other ministers in the land, the only minister worth worth his salt comes from his own congregation. All of the others have nothing to contribute to the advance of the gospel. The tongue and the influence it can have, how very dangerous this little muscle is. Uh, Think, secondly, of the, the devastating damage that can be produced by the tongue. James moves on in verse six to describe the tongue as a raging fire. Now, recent TV images of the bushfires in Australia serve surely to reinforce the point that James is making here. The person who is given to unchecked and careless speech might as well lob incendiary bombs in every direction, whether started accidentally, carelessly, or purposefully, The unbridled tongue can start a raging inferno. 
Turn around, says James, and see the charred trail of devastation that careless words have caused. As a child, I learned the little ditty, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Uh, But it didn't take long to discover that that's simply not true. Names can hurt you. Today, there's no sign, I'm sure, of the bruises you received as a child from a kick or a punch. But what of some vile nickname that was coined? For some, it may have a lingering and a debilitating effect. Oh, the bruises have gone of kicks and punches. But those words that were spoken still gnaw away in your memory banks. Ill-measured words can destroy reputations, assassinate characters, even make people unemployable. Little wonder that the tongue in verse 6 is described as a world of evil among the parts of the body. Can you begin to imagine, for example, how gossip can tear apart a fellowship of God's people? And even if our response to gossip is... I don't want to listen to this. Uh, Stop speaking. If our response is that, the seed has still been sown and that outline image has been painted in our memory which is automatically recalled the next time we meet the person of whom evil has been spoken of. Is that not the case? With good reason, James traces the source of the uncontrolled tongue in verse 6. It corrupts the whole person and sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Notice what he's saying. Few of us would be happy to be described as one of Satan's talking puppets. That's what's going on here. Uh, Many of you, I'm sure, will remember that Jesus called out Peter uh, when he spoke wrongly, discouragingly, uh, seeking to set him against the purpose of God, the Father's will, and said in Matthew 16, get behind me, Satan. There's the source. Satan is behind Uh, the words that you're speaking. That's what James is hinting at here. When our speech habitually exhibits an uncontrolled tongue, notice James speaks, verse 7, of a restless evil. Here is the person who constantly travels around members of the fellowship to pour poison into the ears of all who will listen. And surely James intends this restless quality 
to be understood to reflect Satan's own character. In Job 1 and 7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro from it. Restless activity, always seeking to undermine the purposes of God. Satan doesn't take holidays. He's constantly on the prowl, and for that very reason, uh, the people of God are required to uh, be in their guard. Now, the owner of an uncontrolled tongue might not accept that they are a poisoner, but that's the word that James uses here. And you don't need to be Agatha Christie uh, to know that the deadlier the poison, the smaller the dose that is required. Sometimes it needs only a word or even the inflection of your voice. Just the way you say it. The inflection of your voice. And an innocent person's reputation is destroyed and hearts are broken. Some have actually ended up in psychiatric wards or committed suicide because they've been the target of malicious tongues, not least by those hiding behind the protection of social media. Uh, be persuaded of this. There is no such thing as an idle rumor. Rumors are always busy, always, always busy. Conscious of the harm which words can do, uh, I've read of a minister who carried a little motto card around with him in his pocket, and it read, is it true, is it kind, is it necessary? It's not enough, you see, to refrain from slander and decide only to speak the truth. For truth can be spoken in a way that is unkind. Quite easily done. But truth and kindness are not the only filters our words should pass through. We need to ask, is it necessary that this person hears what I'm about to say? Is it really necessary? I suspect we'd get far better mileage out of our tongues if we were to subscribe to that uh, motto. Thirdly, the inconsistency of uh, the tongue. And it is uh, a treacherous inconsistency that is exposed that can't be found anywhere else in the natural world. <clears throat> James asks, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? No, that's impossible. Goes against the law of nature. Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No. Uh, for these two fail to conform to natural laws. But there is a great inconsistency that flaunts this principle and it's the human tongue. How can tongues, originally designed for good, 
and which profess to be yielded to God change from blessing God one minute to cursing man the next. A sermon entitled Ten Minutes After the Benediction describes the speed with which professing Christians change gear from blessing to berating, from creed to criticism, from worshipping God to wounding men. Such inconsistency is hard to fathom, not least, says James, because the men we curse have been made in God's likeness. Now, this morning we may, may well uh, respond, but, but I don't curse men, I don't, I really don't. But wait, the word James uses for cursing includes all the bitter, callous, unkind, critical, spiteful, angry, harsh, harsh words we say. And that includes gossip. A Puritan has insightfully written, a gossip's mouth is the devil's mailbag. Think about it. A gossip's mouth is the devil's mailbag. Now, I ask this morning, can any sensitive Christian be moved to anything other than the profoundest shame that his or her tongue should behave in such a manner? I know I am. Some time ago, I had occasion to phone my bank over an error that they'd made And after wading through lists of menus and multiple choice options, a process that I'm convinced is designed to raise the frustration levels of all who call uh, the bank, I got through to a real person who seemed a bit slow to grasp the nature of the problem. And to my shame... My language expressed my impatience and frustration. Uh, And when, have you noticed this? When you're on the phone, uh, for some reason, restraints that might otherwise temper your language just aren't in place. And after the matter was resolved to my satisfaction, I put the phone uh, down and glanced again at my bank statement, which was addressed to the Reverend Harry Melia. And I thought, oh, Lord, I've put my foot in it. What will the person at the other end who has this same information in front of them think about the gospel because of that intemperate language Uh, that I use no excuses, uh, repentance required. I suspect many of us uh, aren't as consciously aware of the inconsistency of our tongues as we ought to be. Uh, When the prophet Isaiah, uh, perhaps one of the most eloquent prophets of the Old Testament, 
uh, whose prose is second to none, and I'm glad Will Trobe made that point last week. His prose is second to none. Encountered God, you will remember, in all his majestic holiness in the temple. Uh, What did he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Who'd have thought his lips were guilty of sinful speech. This is the great prophet Isaiah, the the holiest man that we know. I'm a man of unclean lips. And a seraph took a live coal from the temple altar and touched him to assure him of cleansing and forgiveness. And later Isaiah could write, the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, Learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to them who are weary. Now I'm sure I could and perhaps you could benefit from turning those words into prayer. That we might the better learn how to speak to those in need. Whatever that need might be. And so there is... Finally, the demanding uh, necessity of application. Uh, And this subject only becomes evident as we recognize our attempts to justify our uncontrolled speech. I just tell it as it is. I'm just telling you this so you can pray about the fault of this dear brother. I call a spade a spade. I shoot from the hip. And never intend any collateral damage. I'm just the sort of person who speaks without thinking. Some, in seeking to excuse their uncontrolled speech, even cite James, who in verse 8 says, No man can tame the tongue. You see, James says it. No man can tame the tongue. We can tame powerful animals, get elephants to stand on their hind legs, stick our heads in the mouths of lions. Not a procedure I would advise. Persuade snakes to gyrate to soulful music that we play. But the human tongue, surely we can't tame it. Now, some Christians, persuaded of the damage the tongue can do, opt to take a vow of silence. Some decide not to initiate conversations or to reduce the responses to yes or no. Uh, a bit like a three-year-old. Yes or no. I tried that as a young believer after reading Matthew 12 and 36. Uh, Jesus says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Wow, sobering. And after reading that, I thought, well, I'm not going to speak. I'm going to keep quiet. My endeavor lasted less less, uh, than a week. Silence may seem uh, to be of great benefit. Uh, The writer to the proverb says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's, uh, he's deemed intelligent. So there you are, how to raise your IQ ratings in the... Uh, esteem of others. But enforced silence is not the answer. Why? Because God himself is the supreme communicator. 
And in creating us in his image, he created us to be communicators. When God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day, do you think they kept silence? Of course not. They communicated. Our enforced silence, think of this. Our enforced silence denies others words of encouragement and comfort and kindness. Some Christians say, I'm always saying the wrong thing, but that's just the way I am. I remember speaking to a woman who said precisely that. It's just the way I am. Well, James disagrees. He's already hinted at the solution in chapter 1, verse 18. Remember, James is writing to Christian communities. And he says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. The Christian possesses a new nature. He's not only indwelt by, but united to Christ. And as such, he is the possessor of all of the fruit of the Spirit, including self-control. And that includes control over the tongue. This is... Uh, this is what it is that determines whether our speech brings danger or deliverance, burden or benefit. Now, self-control doesn't operate automatically, but needs to be called out by faith in the way a conductor points to a particular musician in the orchestra when waiting to bring him into play. That's the very language that is used in Second Peter uh, 1 verse 3 following. Read that passage when you get home. We don't have time to do it this morning. It is faith that calls out the other graces, including, notice, self-control. The conductor is our faith, pointing to self-control. Before you speak, Lord, I need the fruit of the Spirit, self-control in this situation. And it's a marvelous miracle of grace that an unbridled tongue can be transformed into an instrument of blessing. Before his conversion, uh, John Newton was so foul-mouthed that even fellow sailors whose speech was far from genteel would have nothing to do with him. But transformed by God's amazing grace, his sermons and letters were words of blessing to many and continue to be so today. No man can tame the tongue, true, but God can if we're willing to seek the help of his spirit to produce self-control over our tongue. Nor should we simply excuse ourselves by saying, I blew up because I was provoked. There's little virtue in not speaking evil when there's no temptation to do so. Everything's going fine. But when the circumstances are such that a fierce outburst would be considered the natural reaction and the tongue is controlled, 
that's a, that's a spiritual victory. That's not what people expect to hear. That's a spiritual victory. In 1 Peter 3, 9, Peter reminds his readers of the purpose of their calling. Uh, he says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. It is natural for the new nature to behave in this way. For the new nature is God's supernatural gift to his people. So much more can be said on our use of the tongue uh, from this passage and elsewhere. But I wonder this morning, can we find a, a new determination to daily, with the Spirit's help, uh, put to death our old nature that would love to use our tongues for more sinister purposes? Sidlaw Baxter helpfully comments on this passage. One of the first things that happens when a man is really filled with or controlled by the Spirit is not that he speaks with other tongues, but that he learns to hold the one tongue that he already has. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of speech. We thank you that our capacity to communicate reflects the likeness of God. And so we pray that you would enable us in our use of speech to, uh, to be kind and considerate. Indeed, to ask if it's true, is it kind, is it necessary? We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our failure, for we've all failed you here. But help us, too, to recognize the resources that are ours in Christ Jesus and to employ the faith that you have given us to call out self-control that it would indeed filter our speech so that in all that we say and do, we would not only encourage others, but constantly bring glory to your name. For this we ask, for Jesus' sake, amen.